I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this world of ours. I hope you are truly safe, sound, and above all, healthy. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow with the Carnegie Endowment, um, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a set of virtual discussions of issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, we've changed the format slightly, largely because of the sheer complexity of the subject, Russia and Ukraine, a moment of decision. To help us unpack all of this, we've invited not a single presenter, but three extraordinary presenters. And it reminds me uh, of Jack Kennedy's quip on hosting the Nobel laureates at the White House um, during his presidency. Kennedy says, I think this is the most extraordinary collection of talent gathered together at the White House with a possible exception, and you all know this, of when Th uh, Thomas and Jefferson dined alone. I, I exaggerate a tad, perhaps. But let me introduce our three presenters. Uh, Kadri League is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Her research focuses on Russia, Eastern Europe, and the Baltics. Throughout the 90s, Leek worked as a Moscow correspondent for several Estonian uh, daily papers among other media platforms. Uh, she holds a BA in journalism from Tartu University in Estonia and a, a master's in international relations specializing in diplomacy from the Lancaster University. Andrew Weiss is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. His graphic novel, and you must uh, await this with extraordinary anticipation, his graphic novel biography of Vladimir Putin, Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin, what a title, Andrew, seriously, will be published by First Second Macmillan in November 2022. I can't wait. Andrew's one of the, the two go-to humans that I consult at, at Carnegie when it comes to Russia. Uh, Eugene Rumer, a former national intelligence officer for Russia and Eurasia at the U.S. National Intelligence Council, is a senior fellow and the director of Carnegie's Russia and Eurasia program. He has also served on the NSC staff and at the State Department, taught at Georgetown University and GW and published widely. Gene, of course, is the other go-to uh, source for me. It's great to have the three of you here. I want to begin uh, with the following point of departure, arguable or not. For the first time in nine months, seems to me and others that Putin must confront the very real prospect of losing the war that he triggered. Russia has been far more adept, I think we'd all agree, at fighting defensive wars against Napoleon and Hitler than in waging what I guess you could clearly describe as a discretionary war, a war of choice, much more successful in the latter. America, I might add, knows also about the dangers of discretionary war. The new moment, though, prompts me to ask the three of you to look at the elements of what I think constituted for the last seven or eight months the conventional wisdom about this conflict. And um, I'd like to hear briefly about what each of you think uh, as to whether these elements are still germane. That conventional analysis seems to me had four, four elements. First, that the war would not last weeks or months, 
it would last years. I was I was told this by every Russia analyst and every pundit in Washington. We're talking about a war that will last years, plural. Second, that Putin's internal position uh, was more secure than not, and that he would not be threatened by waging this war, at least internally. Three, that Ukraine was a kind of legacy issue for Putin. I think Gene reminded me uh, a week or so ago that Putin turned 70, that this was a legacy issue for Putin. It may not be an existential question for Russia, but it might be deemed an existential question for Putin. And finally, and as a consequence, he could not, he had to see it through. He'd have to keep on keeping on. And then finally, that the U.S. response was, of course, and NATO, full support for Ukraine. But the overall prime directive of the United States at all costs was to avoid a direct confrontation with Russia that could lead to escalation uh, and war. I just wonder, beginning with you, Andrew, could you offer some brief comments on whether or not this analytical frame going forward, September 28 on, is it part partly fully relevant still? Really uh, great to be with you, Aaron, and uh, nice to see my friend Kadri um, here as well. Um, I think the framing you gave us is okay, but probably not complete. And the reason it's not complete, um, I would just cite a couple of quick factors. One is the data is lousy. And so anyone who thinks they know things or that we have great confidence in where we're headed is overstating what we actually know for sure. And the data sets are bad when it comes to understanding what's happening in Moscow, particularly the calculations of, of Mr. Putin, whose voice probably counts the most of anyone in this whole mess. Two, um, the situation on the battlefield remains shrouded in a lot of, of uncertainty. Um, clearly, the Ukrainians have momentum. But what we know about what's happening on the battlefield remains very anecdotal, and we're all hostage to the things we see in our Twitter feeds and our own emotional desire to see Ukraine safe and secure and fight back the Russian invasion. And then lastly, I think is a need for everyone to try to understand where Russia's uh, leadership intends to drive things and disaggregating the elements of uh, misinformation and uh, attempts to provoke us. So, you know, I, I'm just just to give you a couple of examples of this. At the beginning of the war, Vladimir Putin said some things, and I don't have the exact quote, but he said, like, you basically tuned us out for years and years and you didn't take us seriously. Well, listen to us now. And it was a kind of, you know, I'm really, I want you to, you know, understand how existential I, Vladimir Putin, view this war to be. And if you look at his statement on September 21st, he repeated some of that phrasing and basically said, Russia sees itself as being at war with the West and that this is not just the analogy I would draw, like the equivalent of the United States running Federal Express and flying cargo into an airport and then it just gets picked up and it goes off to a business somewhere that then does you know things with the equipment that's been dropped off. I don't know if Vladimir Putin... Uh, has any, you know, I, I mean, he's probably saying a lot of these things to rattle people in the West and to make us worried that, you know, he's being pushed into the corner. But the last part of what I'm going to say is we know Vladimir Putin to be a very emotional, impulsive person. 
And when you read stuff in the newspaper that we've been boiling the frog and that, you know, we kind of have been able to get things to a place where Russia's threats of retaliation have never been, uh, uh, you know, we've seen no indication of true retaliation yet or uh, the ability to make more and more uh, lethal the Ukrainian uh, response in military terms to the Russian invasion. We still are sort of are assuming that Vladimir Putin isn't that same emotional, impulsive guy who has made so many big decisions in previous periods of his career, some of which were you know, incredibly successful. But as the case has been throughout the past seven months, this one is a disaster of epic proportion. So I'm really not, you know, looking at who this guy is, I don't feel super comfortable boiling Vladimir Putin. You know, I, I think there are still many risks that lie ahead. Thank you, Andrew. All really important uh, data points that translate into cautionary tales. Uh, Kadri, your thoughts? Um, thank you. And thank you for inviting me. I'm, I'm truly um, flattered and, and happy to be with you. Um, as concerns my thinking, I, I have never seen how Putin could properly win uh, that war. Um, if we accept that of his definition of a win or the goal he set out to accomplish was to make Ukrainian understand Ukrainians understand that they are not Ukrainian but they are just a sort of Russians and be happy to be with Russia. Uh, that was never going to happen, neither with Ukraine as a whole nor even with um, a number of uh, eastern provinces. Um, so for me, that has been sort of war of choice and war based on wrong understanding of reality from the start. And that is really something that you know, doesn't equip you very well to win it. Uh, and he also has been misreading the world and the West. I think it's also clear from the start that even if he gained militarily what he wanted, that would come at huge cost to Russia's overall international standing. Its flexibilities uh, to choose partners, the options it has, both politically and economically, all that was always going to be a lot more constrained ever after 24th of February. However, until, yeah, maybe last week's speech, he still had considerable leverage to frame a victory uh, somehow to claim a victory and 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 leave, that would not have been like him. He would have um, understood that he has actually lost in his true aims. But there was some sort of theoretical way out. Now I think he has cut that off uh, with annexation of of territories that I think will be formalized in next few days time when he is due to give his speech um i think there is no way back from that and also the mobilization i think the mobilization has launched something totally new in russia it it is really a change of an era because so far there was a bargain between the kremlin and and the people people demonstrated disinterest or apathy about politics in exchange for some material well-being that was you know definitely better than 1990s and for many it was sort of true um 
the uh, social uh, uphill, uh, the true social success story. And now that has ended. Now Russians are required to make up their minds to decide what they think of Putin's foreign policy. Do they agree with it? Do they uh, agree to get mobilized to support it or not? Uh, and then they need to flee or fight. There is no middle way. The, the apathy position basically uh, has disappeared. And that, I think, has made Putin's position also domestically a lot less, uh, a lot more risky than than was the case earlier. So all in all, I think we are entering dangerous times because the easy options for Putin have not worked out. And I think he is going to embark upon some more risky options because, yeah, uh, he seems to be the kind of guy for whom retreating is really hard. Very thoughtful, Gregory. The notion of a strategic blunder and tactical inflexibility uh, seems to be a, a very bad combination for Mr. Putin. Gene, uh, could we finish up with you now on uh, the analytical frame? Uh, yes. Um, I think uh, I, I would not question by any means the importance of Putin's personality and his role. This really is a war that has been conceived of and carried out by one person. I, I'm convinced that, you know, if it had been Dmitry Medvedev continuing his course of modernization, things would have been very different, even uh, considering the recent statement by Dmitry Medvedev, the really obnoxious saber-rattling that we all have seen in social media and so on. But I want to stress that our problem here is not just with Putin. It's, it's, it's a Russia problem. Uh, the fact that uh, Ukraine is an independent country, independent and sovereign country, is unacceptable for the entire Russian national security establishment. And frankly, based on public opinion data that we have seen until the war really began to touch people personally with this partial mobilization, the Russian public was generally pretty supportive of the war. Um, so, uh, you know, there was no outrage. There was no indignation that we see elsewhere. Um, there's no very little by way of protest in Russia as the war continued for the first seven months. It's only when it touched them personally that it started. So I think um, this idea that somehow an independent and sovereign country with a very different foreign policy orientation is going to exist at the doorstep of Russia. Is it's it's something that no Russian national security establishment can ever accept. And we've seen this throughout history. Russia today is confined to the borders that it was briefly confined to after the Brest-Litovsk peace treaty in 1918, when Russia concluded a separate peace with Germany and left the First World War. That didn't last. And previously, if you look at the history of the Russian state, of the diplomacy of the Russian state, the entire history of Russian foreign policy, probably since the days of Peter the Great or before, is all about expanding the strategic depth, the kind of very physical, tangible interpretation of a country's security. And that's what we think are, we are up against today. It's, 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 it's a known fact that Putin 
has spoken privately but also publicly about NATO missiles inside Ukraine targeting Russia and the flight times that it translates to. And we see this perception of Russian perception of threat uh, manifesting itself throughout history. In, 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 in the early 1980s, for example, late 70s, 1980s, when uh, the deployment by NATO of INF uh, range missiles, intermediate nuclear, you know, intermediate range nuclear forces in Europe, the Pershing twos and the ground launch cruise missiles triggered a massive crisis between NATO and the Soviet Union. And we're seeing it again when Ukraine post-2014 was not frightened into submitting to Russia, but actually took a very different course. And this idea of, and Putin has spoken about this, NATO in Ukraine is not something that he and his national security establishment is prepared to accept. And I think it's going to continue after Putin is gone, whenever he's gone. It's a head-exploding point, um, Gene, which reminds us of the importance of history from the Russian perspective. Uh, whoever controls that space between Berlin and Moscow is going to factor preeminently in Russian strategy. Um I want to go back to you, to Eugene, and we're going to drill down on a few things. First, on the issue of uh, Putin's mindset, I think we want to spend a little more time there. You know, not since Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, I was thinking about this the other day, I don't think as any world leader kept the world on the edge of its collective seat um, until Putin, regarding guessing what is, what, are, what is his tactics, what is his strategy. And it reminds us all, or should remind us all, of the importance of individuals in history. I think it was Marx, not Groucho Marx, the other Marx, who said that men, he was writing in the 19th century, make history, but rarely as they please. So the, the emergence of Zelensky and Putin are, are reminders of the very different courses, one for good, one for ill, of the importance of individuals. But I want to ask you, Gene, and then follow up with Kadri uh, and Andrew, how it's hard. We Putin was viewed as a master, a master tactician, former intel agent who who had his ear to the ground, could read the real estate correctly. How much of Ukraine has been a sort of willful self delusion on Putin's part, an inability to to assess correctly, as Kadri said, reality, and how much is a a question of reading the real estate correctly, but being unable to actually change it, playing a very weak hand and try to trying to play it as strongly as possible. Well, it's um, it's 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 all of the above. Um, you know, it, it is a fact that there is a long history of close and good relations, notwithstanding the oppression of Ukrainian nationalism during the uh, Tsarist and Soviet era, but the portions of the country where the war is being fought now, really the idea of ethnic Russians fighting ethnic Ukrainians was inconceivable. There was no, to anyone, there was no you know, ethnic tension in that country until the war started. Uh, there were plenty of families um, of mixed uh, ethnic background where people basically chose ad hoc. I want to be a Russian or a Ukrainian when it came to registering their nationality, ethnicity, 
in in their Soviet you know passports. And I think that really led uh, people like Putin uh, and his entourage, his immediate advisors, to think that you know Ukraine is really not a real country, is not a real nation. Um, I think they also you know witnessed a series of unsuccessful attempts in Ukraine to launch reforms, to, uh, you know, engage with the West. Uh, You know, the Orange Revolution proved to be uh, disappointing in a sense that it didn't really carry the country forward toward the kind of, you know, market democracy with a transparent uh, regime. And they, 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 they focused on Ukraine as a country that is run by oligarchs, people who can be easily purchased for the right price. And these are the people that have been dealing with, you know, for, for decades on these murky gas deals. So I think they totally missed the, the effect of, uh, you know, multiple events in Ukrainian history, going back to, depending how far you want to go back, the existence of real Ukrainian identity, of real Ukrainian nationalism, the effect that the Chernobyl tragedy had on the, national kind of reawakening in Ukraine after a long period of Soviet domination. They totally missed that. I think for people like Putin, for people like his Security Council Secretary, Patrushev, people of that generation, they really believed in the Soviet Union. And they really thought that they could just, you know, walk in and after, you know, a very lackluster performance of the Ukrainian economy over the years and the series of uh, leaders who proved to be quite disappointing people like, you know, Kovic or others, uh, that they, 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 they would be embraced. So I think that's, uh, that, that's, that, that's very true. It was a huge strategic miscalculation, of course. Kudry, does that surprise you that Putin seems to have, and others in his circle, seems to have misread so fundamentally um, the nature, the nature of his, of their neighbor? Um. It does and it doesn't. I am um, because I have seen signs of it for a long time. I mean, Jean is absolutely right in in describing how there are things about Ukraine that many people in Russia simply refuse to see. But for me, for Ukraine somehow being split between West and East, I don't think that has ever been the case. I mean, Ukraine has many more regional identities. I don't know, ten, twelve, whatever. And and they all have their own peculiarities and they are all sort of slightly unruly and disobedient to Kiev, but they are all happy to be part of Ukraine. So Ukraine has always been happy to be Ukraine. And that sort of myth that it's split between East and West, but actually we in the West sometimes have adopted from Russians completely mistakenly. That is just not the case. But I, of course, I keep being shocked by it because... It, Russia could have had everything in Ukraine had they only been sort of slightly more respectful, had they accepted Orange Revolution, but people didn't want stolen election, they didn't want Yanukovych, had they reached out to Yushchenko. I mean, it would have been so easy to make a deal with Yushchenko. I, I think it would have been absolutely possible to try to convince Ukraine that, you know, we don't want you to join NATO. We somehow feel strong discomfort about that. But, you know, have your own 
elections, government, we are happy to have trade with you, we are happy to sell you, I don't know, gas at discount or or whatnot. I I think, you know, they could have got much goodwill for free uh, and then they could have got a number of things by sort of bribing people. Um, this heavy-handedness that they have exercised has has been always counterproductive. And that is something that I find astonishing. I mean, in its interactions with its so-called near abroad, Russia behaves as a hopeless control freak. They even have expression for that, to force that to friendship. Uh, I mean, a number of, of Russians have been uh, saying so a number of occasions. And that is exactly the thing that actually excludes real friendship or even real respect. That's what makes all these countries escape Russia. Fascinating. Uh, Andrew, yeah, the, li- the life and lies of Vladimir Putin. Yeah, I think the the part of this that we all have to remember, as much as this has been the colossal blunder and potentially Putin's undoing, is the man has been on a roll for 20 years. Good point. None of the global leaders who were around when he was first uh, selected out of nowhere in 1999 to replace an ailing then President Yeltsin is still around. And he has overseen a Russia which grew fabulously wealthy got off his knees, as he likes to remind people, and reasserted itself on the global stage, and then had a string of tremendous successes. So that fed a level of hubris and arrogance and basically put in motion the sense that he could take Kiev in three days. And a lot of people in the West, myself included, were really worried that the, the Russians would roll over Ukraine. And then the Ukrainians have done two things. They resisted. They have now, I think, a genocidal, quasi-genocidal war on their hands after the revelations in Bucha. Um, And they don't have anywhere to go. Like, there's no negotiation here about going back to the world that existed on February 23rd. Um, And I think that forces a lot of really uncomfortable choices on Western leaders as well, because they had often, I think, taken for granted that we would have this kind of murky relationship between Russia and its neighbors. And everyone on the NATO side of that line was basically in the the safe area, but we weren't really going to have to occupy ourselves with dealing with the countries in the middle. And now though those issues are really coming at us fast and furious. Yeah. I mean, I could quote Crosby, Stills, and Nash here uh, and talk about life, life's about learning, because it brings me to the issue of Putin's speech, which Kadri basically reminds us, more or less, he could have reframed in a different way. But he's, but he seemed to reframe by doubling down or throwing down the gauntlet. Um, so I'd like to look at each, each element of this speech. There were three. One is the referendums or referenda. Second is the partial, limited, whatever, mobilization. The third is the nuclear threat. And I wonder if I could assign um, sort of haphazardly to each of you uh, to talk a little bit about one of those elements. So, um, Kadri, could you talk about, you started to talk about the mobilization. Could you, um, exactly what is it? Partial, limited, it has flexibility. Uh, there was a piece by Sasha Banov, I think, in the FT, 
yesterday in which Alexandra Sasha said that uh, this could mobilize up to a million Russians, up to a million Russians into the war. So what about the partial mobilization? I think it is a big mess. Um, they announced mobilization. Uh, they made regional governors responsible for fulfilling the quotas. I think governors are panicking. Uh, they are probably mobilizing many people who uh, should be exempt by the criteria that have been announced. I think the numbers are probably going to be higher than 300,000. Hard to hard to charge at this moment, but it seems they have cast the net really, really widely. Um, and of course, they are sending some of them to the front already. I mean, the first ones have been captured and, and by Ukrainians and some have been killed and they have ended up on the front completely unprepared and without proper equipment. I mean, it's a huge crime against Russia's own people. And that's another thing that I, I find just shocking about it. Uh, so, and in military terms, I think where it's getting to is of old Russian way of, of waging a war. They compensate with, they use quantity to compensate for what they are lacking in quality. And that is awful. That is, that is so cruel. Mm. And internally, in terms of um, Putin's own uh, command and control, will it be a threat? I would, that's a hard question. I mean, I, I do not see the situation as it is in Russia sustainable in any way. I mean, all my instincts say that it will crack one day. Um, but when and how exactly, uh, it's, it's, it's very hard to tell because, yeah, as many people have said, we don't see anyone who could um, set up a coup in, in Moscow. Um, a revolution does not seem to be happening. Uh, no police forces are breaking ranks. So, you know, where should where should the cracks come from? I don't know, but at the same time, what is very evident to me is that the system is eating itself. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org/slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. We'll circle back in a little bit about stability internally. Um, Gene or, or uh, An Andrew, a brief comment on the mobilization question before we go to uh, Andrew, to you on the referendums. Brief comment to add to what Kadri ha ha had to say. Yes, I absolutely agree with Kadri that, you know, this is the traditional Russian way of war, unfortunately. 
We saw that in the Chechnya campaign in the 1990s. We saw it, well, we didn't see it, but we know it from earlier history and so on. That said, um, this time, of course, Putin has the numerical advantage over Ukraine, but he doesn't have the numbers that the Soviet Union had. And actually, a lot of men of draft age are leaving con- the, 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 the country now. So um, it's, 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 it's an interesting question of how this mobilization can be sustained, not politically, domestically, but just in terms of generating the required numbers of people. And don't forget that after the, this mobilization of 300,000 or so in October, I believe, Russia has the regular call-up for the draft scheduled, and that is something like 120, 125,000 people on top of it. So where all these numbers are going to come from, interesting question. Andrew, do you uh, add, or you can go on to the uh, tell us about the referendums? Well, just real quick on, <clears throat> on all these issues, I think that People now, as you know, have been watching this war, or more likely not watching the war, and basically diverting their eyes from the horrible uh, things that Russia has done in Ukraine that will never be removed. That will be a permanent stain. But I, I would also say we don't know enough about Russian society's ability to absorb all of this stuff. And so far, the Russian government has not had to rely too much on its repressive apparatus to get people to fall in line. So they do things in a very sadistic and selective way. Uh, Today's example, which is just truly horrible, is a poet read something on the street in Moscow, and then he was raped in custody. And the Russian government is happy to have information about that rape all over the place because it sends a shock through uh, activist circles and and average people's uh, reality. So they're they're good at these kind of you know small demonstrations of repression and violence to get people to fall in line, and then there's a adverse selection process unfolding where the people with means or the least happy are the ones who are running most likely for the exits, and you're left with people who are more passive and apathetic who will do their duty because they think you know. It's my country, and I have you know my country is asking me to do something, even if I don't agree with it. One of your points, though, Andrew, was that we need to be very, very careful about the data points that we're witnessing. Um, and if you, the media seems to have created this breathless frame that um, the mobilization has created huge. Cleavage, cleavages and cracks. The Russians are deploying forces to hand draft papers to Russian men who are leaving the country or preventing them from leaving. You've got all of these terribly chaotic scenes in in the regions, far far regions about um, conscription among minorities. It appears as if, and this feeds the notion that we've reached the title of this panel, a sort of decisive moment that we're on the verge of some fundamental transformation of Russia internal. And I I would suspect that three of you would be wary about coming to that judgment. But in the the end, maybe we we, we can talk about that a bit. What about the referendums, Andrew? What what are they? And um, is what you see what you get? 
And uh, what are the downsides? I think that the Russians have thrown this together in a slapdash fashion. They don't care about how it looks. It's impossible for them to be embarrassed. But if you recall, one of Zelensky's original motivations for launching a successful counteroffensive at the end of August was precisely because he was worried about this happening. And so now that the Russians have done it and presumably will formally annex more Ukrainian territory in the coming days through some, you know, rubber stamp procedure in their parliament, the facts are changing. And I I don't need to tell you, as someone who's worked on the Middle East for as long as you have, that when the facts change, that matters. And we can try to pour scorn on what Putin's doing. We can write angry talking points. Um, But it is now going to be a new reality, unfortunately, potentially. And the reality will be challenged on the, you know, on the ground by Ukrainian service members who will continue to uh, conduct military operations in the areas Russia now claims are part of Mother Russia. Um, There will be, you know, as the Ukrainians have been very effective in making sure that Russia can't exercise uh, authority in those areas unchallenged. So you'll see more targeted killings and other things. So it'll just be messy. Um, But, you know, the original thought of a lot of Western strategy has been if we highlight things to the world and delegitimize it or we remove the element of surprise it takes some of the sting out of what Russia's doing. And that has worked spectacularly well by calling, you know, the world's attention to the plan to invade Ukraine in the first place. But in this instance, it hasn't slowed down what Putin is doing. It's, it's just a speed bump. The downside, of course, is that if you annex territory and claim it as your own, the loss of that territory, should it occur, becomes even more humiliating and a more fundamental challenge. It strips away flexibility in a degree, doesn't it? Assuming at some point there would be some sort of off-ramp. I I can't even imagine one diplomatically. Gene, let me turn to you now on the third piece of the Putin trifecta speech, which is the implicit nuclear threat, which he's raised a couple times since the conflict has begun. Uh, All three of you have referred to Putin's impulsive nature, his emotional nature. Um, I mean, to offer a binary choice, is this a bluff or not, seems to be sort of trivializing the dangers involved here. Um, Why is he doing this? And under what circumstances, short of a NATO attack on Russia proper, would he use nuclear weapons, either for demonstration effect uh, or on the battlefield? Well, Aaron, uh, this is really thinking about the unthinkable, literally. And I have a hard time even, you know, just talking about this. But um, I think the threat, and not just implicit, I think it's gone beyond implicit. Um, if you know to to use a term, I think applied to President Trump, we should not take it literally, but we should take it seriously. Um, I think 
it is a very serious uh, threat that we're confronting now. We've thought about this for a long time, and we still don't know, I would say, how to deal with it. Uh, what would be the circumstances? This is a situation where I think reading Soviet and Russian military literature is only limited utility. Um, yes, I agree that Putin is impulsive sometimes, um, but it's clear that he also understands, he's been at it for a long time, he understands the nature of the threat that he's making, uh, and I think it's entirely deliberate, and he understands the effect that it's having in the West and also in, in Ukraine. Um the circumstances, again, I, I struggle to imagine those circumstances under which logically he could use it. But I think if uh, you look at Ukrainian war objectives now articulated very, very clearly, which are the return to the borders of 1991, this means not just the territories in eastern Ukraine that are about to be annexed, but also Crimea. Uh, reparations for the war and war crimes, war crimes indeed, uh, trials for the perpetrators, including Putin. And he is the chief perpetrator, clearly. He, so... Um, if Ukraine continues to be successful on the battlefield, as we expect it will be for some time with improved cap the capabilities that it's getting, I could see circumstances in which he would, and if this, the Russian army, almost the Soviet army, if the Russian army continues to perform as poorly as it has, um, I, I can see him ordering a, a, a limited strike uh, for demonstration effect. Um, of course, you know, I can't point to a, you know, a source in Russian military literature that would say this is what happens. But the doctrine that he has articulated, that he articulated a few years ago about uh, when Russia would use nuclear weapons, um, you know, covers this contingency. So I think it's pretty clear. The other thing that I would say, and, and this is... Um, a dangerous territory for me to go into because it's speculation. And this clear, these clearly are events of very different or contingencies of very different magnitude. But the explosion that we just witnessed of the Russian pipeline, uh, the Nord Stream uh, 1 and 2, the three explosions of the underwater pipeline, uh, that now apparently the Danish government has established was the result of sabotage. Um, I don't believe that they've established who is the guilty party, but I can well imagine, again, I have to be careful here and say this is pure speculation on my part, but I could see this as being a signal sent by Putin. I'm prepared to blow up my own critical assets that used to tie me literally, physically to Europe in this situation. So think about what else I can do. You know, we haven't talked much about Ukraine internal, and there's a obviously I think there's a reason for that. Um, 
Ukraine is presenting a unified threat against the Russians. You've got the heroism and suffering of the Ukrainian people, uh, the performance of the military, and Zelensky. All of that is suspended, at least for now. Uh, any fractures or internal disagreements over how the war is being waged or what would follow. The post-Ukraine situation, post-war Ukraine, is or is not going to be fundamentally different than the Ukraine that we've known. I pose that not as a rhetorical question, but I, I think it's a good one. Freedom House reported in their 2022 report on democracy that Ukraine was partly free. Endemic corruption, challenges to the judiciary, absence of protection for minorities, and the influence of the oligarchs um, warranted that partly free rating. Now, when Ukraine is now the fulcrum of Western civilization and waging this war in defense of democracy, um, I guess we could only speculate what kind of changes will occur um, or, or have occurred already. Do any of you have thoughts on Ukrainian internal politics that you'd like to offer? I mean, I realize it's speculative. The oligarchs, I'm told, are proving much less of a problem already, given the fact that so much of their assets, ports, mines, agricultural land, has been destroyed. And you know this better than I, but in the recent prisoner exchange, am I correct that Medvedchuk was one of the, Viktor Medvedchuk was one of the um, prisoners that the Russians demanded, and he's been returned to Moscow. So the oligarchs seem to have been discredited, pro-Russian oligarchs. Any thoughts on Ukrainian internal politics, Mr. Zelensky? Well, I think Zelensky has undoubtedly turned out to be a really good wartime leader. And his background as an actor actually is very good for that. I mean, he, he uses many of those qualities to, to a great effect uh, right now. Um, that does not mean that, you know, peacetime Ukraine will become another Finland being law abiding, uh, to procedures, uh, etc. We don't really know, I think, what, what kind of political landscape will emerge from the war. I think right now, given that Ukraine is waging an existential battle, it's a really very creative moment, I think, in, in many ways. Right now, Ukraine is not hindered by any bureaucratic red tape, nor by corruption. I, I think many people do what they can to save a country, to, to help the battle, and and they can a lot. But of course, when, when that ends um, and peace resumes, then um, obviously things... I mean, that kind of unity will inevitably disappear, but that always happens. Uh, I remember Estonia in 1991 and, you know, the political landscape after that, inevitably. Uh, there are some factions, some disappointments, um, all that. And I think that's going to be in Ukraine as well. But the big question you're asking, will the country's political culture be distinctly different? Um, 
I cannot really answer. I think there is a chance that that could be the case, but we, we cannot be sure. And I at least, I don't see the outlines of, of a future landscape. No, I, I agree 100% with what Kadri said. The only piece I'd add is to think about you, the way Ukraine as a, uh, a democracy with all of its flaws affecting the overall strategic direction of the conflict. And, you know, the Ukrainian people, you know, want everything back that's been taken from them. They want not just the territories that Russia occupied in 2014, but they want Crimea and they want to go back basically to the 1991 recognized international borders. They will want reparations. They will want accountability, essentially, you know, war crime tribunals for the Russians who led this criminal war. And then, you know, the sort of last part of this, which I think is where it starts to get really complicated, if those three weren't tough enough, is that, uh, you know, there'll be some way to prevent it from ever happening again. And it's very hard um, to deny those uh, millions of Ukrainians the moral clarity and uh, righteousness of their goals, right? Like, this is... uh, unthinkable, horrible war that has shocked all of us and angers all of us. Um, the question is at what you know level can the US or you know the Europeans who support Ukraine get us some of the way there, um, all the way there? Like those are pretty you know dramatic, transformative goals to end this conflict. I, you know, I, I have no illusions. I remember what Ukraine was like in the 1990s, actually late 80s, early in 1990s. So I have no illusions about Ukraine's path from this point on as a straight line and, you know, quickly becoming Finland. That's it's it, everything that um, Kadri said and Andrew said uh, is true. But on the whole, uh, we have seen over time movement in the right direction. Uh, we go back to the 1990s. There was a period of profound disappointment after the initial burst of optimism. Uh, but then we had the Orange Revolution in 2004, and that propelled the country forward. And I think one of the most important, probably the most important forces driving the country in that direction is Ukrainian civil society that was really propelled to the fore of Ukrainian domestic politics after the 2014 Russian let's call it what it was, invasion of Ukraine. And it's been even more empowered and emboldened today. And I think any leader, whoever it is, Zelensky or somebody who comes after him, will not be able to not listen to the will of the Ukrainian civil society. And that, I think, is on the whole is a positive, although it promises to be a very difficult path uh, because of the factors that Andrew just pointed out to that this kind of, you know, peace on Ukrainian terms will be very difficult to negotiate, but there is just no compromise here. Having voted for Republicans and Democrats and worked for Republicans and Democrats, um, I, I I would say, and no administration is perfect, that this, this has been rather deft alliance management on the part of the Biden administration. I mean, we can argue this, that, or the other. Some may, in fact, argue that uh, it hasn't been so deft. Um, given the cruel and unforgiving nature of the world, I think Biden's done a pretty pretty good job. So I, I just would ask each of you, 
not to bury Caesar and not necessarily to praise him, but if you want to identify uh, one thing that hasn't been done well or needed to do much better, what would it be? Andrew, a thought? I think the trickiest part here, apart from the obvious one of being hostage to events and having all sorts of surprises thrown at them and dealing with that um, quite well, is the overall lessons this will this whole war will generate for the use of sanctions as a tool of economic and political warfare. And you know, we all see that Russia has had, by virtue of being such a large uh, uh, exporter of hydrocarbons, a unique role in the global economy. That may not be true in future scenarios when the U.S. is confronted with a country acting uh, as horribly as Russia has acted in Ukraine. But there is a real, I think, reckoning that needs to be uh, had down the road about sanctions, although, you know, they play their role. They're useful to put pressure on the Russian government and show that there's a penalty. It's a useful way to signal to the public that, you know, we're doing something. Um, but they're not necessarily a tool for changing behavior in the here and now, which, you know, there's such an urgent need for, um, given given what Russia is doing. Kadri, a thought on the U.S. role? What could be have been done better? What should be done better? I think this will go on for a bit longer. I actually think that Biden has handled Russia pretty well throughout, um, you know, or also before the war. I actually liked the way he tried to reach out to Putin. I, I, I liked the way he offered Russia to talk about things like arms control and global and European order in ways that previous administrations had not offered, even you know, leaving Trump aside. Um, so I think it's a sort of very sane and sober view on Russia throughout. And when Russians complained that they were surprised about central bank sanctions and the unorthodox means that the West used against them, I don't know why they were surprised. I mean, I, I somehow trust that actually Biden's people let Putin know before the war um, that they were prepared to go to great length to make it as hard as possible to Russia. I mean, they sort of were warned, I think, honestly. Um, so I, 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 to be honest, I find little to complain about. And I think also Europe has done pretty well. I have just done survey among European member states. And, you know, it seems to me that if President Putin is hoping that um, winter will make Europe go soft and, and ask for cheap Russian gas, I don't think that is going to happen. Uh, mood is, is, is quite different despite the hardship and despite worry. Um, I give high marks to the administration for handling this terrible problem. Um, I also want to note that they had a lot of help from Putin. Uh, I think Putin deserves a lot of credit for mobilizing the Ukrainian nation, consolidating its will. So, uh, and this is not just me kidding, but I think it, it really is, you know, a true fact that uh, his horrible handling uh, of just about everything that, that concerns this war the very war itself has been really uh, incredibly empowering uh, for Europe uh, as a whole uh, and for the Transatlantic Alliance. So I think he deserves a lot of credit for it. But Biden does too. 
Um, the one thing that, I mean, I don't know that the administration is not thinking about it, but I think it's probably not too uh, soon to think about what kind of Russia we're going to have to deal with when this is over, because we, we, we cannot, uh, to use a term from the 1990s, we cannot accept the notion that there will be a world without Russia. Russia will remain beaten down in retreat, hopefully, and so on, uh, on the Ukrainian front in, in Europe. Uh, but it's a country that will remain active on the world stage. And we have a number of important equities, not to say that we have to embrace Putin in a dialogue now, but you know, from arms control to cyber to you name it, those issues will not go away and we're gonna have to deal with it. All right, one final question. I know you don't wanna I know you don't wanna be asked it, but I'm gonna ask it anyway. Um, you know, Pythia, the Oracle at Delphi, reading the best Godin trails, could not possibly answer this question. But I'm gonna ask it anyway. It's now September 28, 2022. Where will we be in the summer of 2023? I think the war, the war goes on. I think the risks and the dangers keep multiplying and the complexities and the problem metastasizes. Um, this is going to be a you know, quintessential problem from hell that's going to be with us for a very long time. I do not know where we will be, but I think a lot will have happened by that time. It seems to me that the pace of events is is significant and and going up. So um, I I don't think that we will be able to continue this conversation from where we stopped today. Um, as Kadri said, uh, this, this who knows how it's going to go, but I would say the baseline scenario that I stick with is the one that's closer to Andrews with the work continuing, possibly stalemated somewhere. I can't predict what the line of contact, where it's going to be, but with more horrible losses for Ukraine, more devastation for Ukraine, but also very severe losses for Russia. So uh, neither side, I think, a year from now will be prepared to say enough is enough. Thank you. Uh, Jack Kennedy Kennedy was right about it, Thomas Jefferson, and I was right about the three of you. Uh, your, your experience, your, you speak with a tremendous authority, uh, history, culture, politics, critically important. It, just phenomenal. I learned a ton. Thanks for coming. And uh, as I'd say at the end of these sessions, think positive and test negative. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranata are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.